previously on Flying the Line. The transition of pilots and airlines to the jet age becomes a major trouble spot for all, and the rising tensions result in some pilots taking matters into their own hands with an unauthorized strike. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 23, Jets and Thin Ice, part two. The Eastern pilots began walking out on June 12, 1960. The airline was forced to cancel 104 flights the first day of that Wildcat strike. By the second day, over 50% of Eastern flights had been scrubbed. Despite an emergency court injunction against the walkout on June 14th, Eastern Airlines scheduled flights dropped to only 30% of the pre-strike total as court officers had trouble finding pilots to subpoena. ALPA had to walk a fine line during this affair due to the legal complexities of the contract. Clancy Sayan had to make perfectly clear that this action was the product of contractual issues with the federal government, and ALPA was in no way responsible. Many Eastern pilots as well as others at American Airlines and TWA, faulted Sayan for not supporting the Wildcat strike more directly. Years later, during Operation USA, which was short for Unity for Safe Air Travel, ALPA President J.J. O'Donnell, who was an Eastern pilot during the Wildcat strike, would apply some of the lessons learned in 1960. By defining Operation USA as an exercise in free speech to protest government policies, the nationwide shutdown ALPA threatened in 1981 would ultimately rest on the notion of petitioning the government for redress of grievances and would not technically be a strike against the airlines in question. Unfortunately, this reasoning never occurred to Sayan in 1960 because the trouble that developed so quickly at Eastern made ALPA more of an observer than an active participant. Despite the injunction against the pilot's wildcat strike, the trouble spread to Pan Am on June 20, 1960, as 102 pilots refused to fly in a show of solidarity with Eastern pilots. James Landis, who at the time was challenging Sayan for the ALPA presidency, injected the Wildcat strike into ALPA politics by promising fully to support the strike if he succeeded in ousting Sayan. By June 25th, under the threat of contempt of court citations and with Clancy Sayan reluctantly calling for the pilots to return to work, operations at Eastern were back to normal. Nevertheless, Eastern Airlines filed suit against ALPA, its officers, and the striking Eastern pilots individually for over $11,400,000 in damages. 
this harassing legal action eventually came to nothing, and it probably reflected the new Eastern management's frustration over losing money for the first time since 1934. As part of the flurry of lawsuits emerging from the 1960 Wildcat strike at Eastern, Alpa filed suit against the FAA, seeking to void the Casada approach to in-flight checks. Nothing came out of the Alpa suit either, and eventually Alpa would have to bargain directly with the FAA over cockpit check procedures. During the early jet era, Alpa fought FAA Administrator Casada over many things, particularly his methods, but never his emphasis on safety. Everybody wanted safety, but Casada's approach, in the opinion of airline pilots who lived through that era, was entirely punitive, focusing too much on the alleged inadequacies of individual pilots and not nearly enough on the shortcomings of the system. For the pilots who ran ALPA during this period, two problems with the system were significant. Inadequacy of training and inherent flaws in air traffic control, which the new jets intensified. To address the first of the systematic problems, one should be aware that airline training had historically been weak. In the early days, regardless of how a pilot had gotten a license, airline managers generally agreed that the pilot was trained. Even airlines like TWA, which had more rigorous recurrent training programs than others, lagged behind the military in introducing modern training programs and devices. So once again, as had happened so often in the history of commercial aviation, ALPA took the lead that management should have taken and insisted that if pilots were to be vulnerable during recurrent FAA line checks, then they should at least have adequate training to prepare them. Captain Ed Watson of Eastern led the first ALPA Training Plans Committee, which was tasked with putting together the technical assistance needed to enable the individual training committees at each airline to build adequate training programs for their own pilots. ALPA's position throughout the jet transition was that proper training alone would not solve the safety problem. Casada dismissed ALPA's complaints. His whole program rested on the assumption that pilots were at fault not the system itself. Casada, like most Eisenhower appointees, enjoyed a very favorable press with influential publications like Time, Life, and Fortune. Time, for example, praised Casada because he cracked down on careless flying procedures. Casada trained a corps of FAA inspectors, mostly military retirees, and then sent them out to prove that they can fly better than the pilots they're checking out. One out of four airline pilots failed the checks administered by Casada's inspectors, who insisted, among other things, that airline pilots begin demonstrating their basic airmanship by doing approaches to stalls in routine checks. It all looked pretty good to the man on the street, 
and the administration was willing to give Quesada's methods a chance. There was only one problem, however. Despite Quesada's crackdown on pilots, the safety record deteriorated in the late 1950s. Naturally, professional airline pilots resented Quesada's attack, but until he lost support by refusing to ground the Lockheed Electra during the airliner's time of trouble, it was dangerous for Alpa to attack him, as Quesada had public opinion on his side. Casada insisted that his publicized revamping of the air transportation system under the 1958 law, coupled with his campaign to bring commercial aviation up to military standards, would eventually solve all problems. A number of ALPA activists publicly opposed Casada. Bobby Rohan of National Airlines attacked the requirement that FAA checks include approaches to stalls. After the crash of a National Airlines DC-7 over the Gulf of Mexico in November 1959, Rohan publicly warned that the probable cause of the crash was structural failure induced by Casada's required stall maneuvers. Rohan denounced approaches to stalls as not necessary and harmful to the airframe and warned that national pilots would no longer perform them. Casada threatened to end the flying career of any national pilot who refused to go through the full check, and he had the power to make it stick. Then, one of those high-profile crashes that illuminates a safety problem happened. Aviation historians know it as the Brooklyn-Staten Island crash because one plane plummeted into Brooklyn and the other into Staten Island. For the first time, two aircraft under positive radar control in full instrument conditions collided in midair. The tragedy proved that the system could as easily cause death just as much as an inexperienced pilot. The Brooklyn-Staten Island crash of December 16, 1960, was caused when a United Airlines DC-8 collided with the TWA Super Connie. Both planes were under full radar control from the ground. 139 lives were lost that day. The United DC-8 had entered holding at a normal cruising speed overshot the prescribed racetrack pattern, and collided with the TWA aircraft. Federal regulations did not require a reduction in speed before entering holding, even though it was aerodynamically impossible for a DC-8 to stay within the limits of the holding pattern without doing so. The United captain was following the book, but obviously, there was a flaw in its pages. By now, it was Casada's system. Casada had championed radar ground control as a cure-all for the system. Alba had always distrusted absolute ground control because it robbed the pilot of authority. The Brooklyn-Staten Island crash offered Alba an opportunity to attack Casada's policies without seeming self-interested and vindictive. Any high-profile accident 
will cause a gusher of sensational news stories. Often, most of the early releases will be misleading, and federal officials, heckled by reporters and feeling public pressure, will sometimes make statements that add to the confusion. FAA Administrator Casada made just such a statement to the press. Within a few days, Casada announced on television that the United plane was at fault for overshooting its holding pattern. Immediately, Pat Patterson of United blasted Casada for being premature. While Casada and Pat Patterson engaged in a verbal battle via the headlines, the FAA investigating team, along with ALPA's accident study group, patiently sought the probable cause of the Brooklyn-Staten Island crash. Casada undoubtedly was seeking to regain some of the prestige he had lost recently by allowing the Lockheed Electra to keep flying despite fatal crashes involving structural failure. Casada's position was that the Electra was safe at reduced speeds, since the harmonic vibrations from the engines that had caused metal fatigue in the aircraft's wings did not begin until maximum cruising speeds were approached. The public, needless to say, was so leery of the Electra that the plane's full commercial potential was never realized, and Casada suffered because the public saw him as sacrificing safety to the economic interest of the airlines and aircraft manufacturers. Attempting to recoup his public standings, Casada used the Brooklyn-Staten Island crash as a further argument in favor of stricter age limitations on airline pilots, particularly those operating jets. After all, military pilots seldom flew actively once they were in their 50s, so why should airline pilots? Since the allegedly slow reaction time of the United captain caused him to overshoot the holding pattern, Casada suggested once more that jet captains retire at age 55. Casada also made much of some recent crashes where pilot incapacitation played a role, particularly an October 1959 crash involving a pilot who was taking tranquilizers and undergoing mental treatment. Since the pilot had concealed his psychiatric problems from the FAA, Casada suggested that mental incapacitation might have played a role in the accident. Alpa objected strenuously to Casada's airing of this opinion, largely because there was no direct evidence suggesting that the pilot's mental state caused the crash. Similarly, in another crash of a non-scheduled airline's military charter, the pilot in question had concealed a heart condition from FAA medical examiners. When he died suddenly in the cockpit, his co-pilot proved incapable of landing the airplane safely. ALPA pointed out that any regulatory setup that would permit an airline to employ an incompetent co-pilot, particularly a company holding a Pentagon contract, showed again that there was more wrong with the system than with the pilots. Against this contentious background, the final act of the Brooklyn-Staten Island affair was played out. Initially, 
Casada's position, as usual, was that pilot error had caused the crash, whereas Alpa argued that the system was at fault. Casada seized upon the lack of redundancy in radio equipment in the United Airlines plane, citing continued flight into the New York terminal area without fully functioning avionics as a prime factor in the accident. The United DC-8 crew, according to Casada's reconstruction, was unable to locate the radial designating the limits of the holding pattern quickly enough because they had to reset the single-functioning VOR receiver. The investigation later proved conclusively that any time lost tuning radios by the crew of the ill-fated DC-8 was inconsequential. The United Airlines aircraft was slowing from crews after entering the terminal area. Although its speed had dropped only some 50 knots, it was still screaming along at over 300 knots when the collision occurred. Casada obviously knew this speed was too fast to allow the DC-8 to remain within the racetrack pattern. So simultaneously, with his denunciation of United Airlines, the FAA promulgated new maximum airspeeds in terminal areas. The new limit was 250 knots. Had the United Airlines aircraft been flying at that speed or below, the crew probably would not have overshot the racetrack holding pattern. New air traffic control procedures would have helped too, like the one that called for reporting the loss of avionics to ATC. The DC-8 was lacking one VOR receiver, and had there been a requirement for this to be reported to ATC, it's possible the radar controller could have paid closer attention to the plane. As it was, the radar controller simply sat and watched the DC-8 barrel past the limits of its holding pattern until it disappeared into the blip of the TWA aircraft. Naturally, this made Casada's reliance on ground radar control suspect. While conducting his publicity campaign, Casada quietly ordered mandatory reports from all aircraft losing radio navigation equipment, thus indicating that he knew the DC-8 crew was not wholly at fault. But publicly, Casada continued to bemoan dangerous flight practices of civilian airline crews and implied that they were misbehaving in the cockpit. Bit by bit, the jet transition progressed with episodes like the Brooklyn-Staten Island lesson adding to overall knowledge. There would be others in the future that demonstrated even ATC procedures that seem time-tested and foolproof can have fatal consequences, such as the TWA 727 crash into Mount Weather on the approach to Washington Dulles Airport in December 1974. But the Mount Weather crash was far in the future, and Alba greeted the election of John F. Kennedy with a sigh of relief and the hope of a better working climate. The change of administration in Washington promised an early departure for Casada. Few in Alba would miss him. The constant battle with the Casada led FAA 
had been one of the most trying aspects of the transition to jets. But now a new trial awaited professional airline pilots in their taming of the big jets, as some deviant individuals demonstrated how easy it would be to simply produce a pistol, take command of the aircraft, and rule the lives of crew and passengers while in flight. Next time on Flying the Line, the era of skyjacking arrives, testing two of the association's presidents and demanding a terrible toll on airline pilots. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 23 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpha 2021. All rights reserved.